HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to The Farm Report, hosted by Heather Hyman and Jack Inslee. Hello, it's Wednesday, it's 5 o'clock, you are logged on to HeritageRadioNetwork.com and you're listening to The Farm Report. As our good friend Brian Kenny just told you, I'm Jack Inslee. Heather Hyman. And uh, I'm back after a few weeks of uh, disappearing. I I was sick, I was traveling, but I'm back, I'm here, we're excited, we've got a great show. Um, Hearst Ranch is sponsoring today's episode, and Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, you can go to HearstRanch.com. And Heather, who do we have on the show today? We have Mr. John T. Edge of the Southern Foodways Alliance, who we are honored to have with us today. How are you today, John? Well, thank you. We've got big fans of you here in Brooklyn. When Roberta's wanted to give a nice little shout out and say hello to you as well. Well, I was just in New York and did my darndest to get to Roberta's and failed, but so many of my friends did and came back raving. So, mm, have you have you heard about the fried chicken at Roberta's? Um, if I came to Roberta's, I would probably steer clear. That would be a busman's holiday. I want pizza. I hear y'all do great pizza. Fair enough. Most certainly. Um, John, can you tell us um, exactly the history of the Southern Foodways Alliance? Sure. Um, the Southern Foodways Alliance was founded a little more than 10 years ago by um, 50 folks, um, diverse in terms of uh, careers, um, everything from barbecue pitmasters to row crop farmers to white tablecloth chefs, diverse in terms of um, of race, black and white together, um, diverse in terms of gender, um, with this idea that by exploring um, the food culture of the South, you might understand the region better, and you might find the keys toward a better South, a more co- progressive South, that food might help us span um, the gaps of race and class. Um, that's what I'm in it for. That sounds awesome. Um, how did you get involved in the Southern Foodways Alliance? Um, there's a gentleman named John Edgerton. His name sounds a lot like mine, but he's a heck of a lot smarter than me and a heck of a lot better writer than me. Um, John wrote two great books. One was called, simply enough, Southern Food on the Road 
um, excuse me, at home, on the road, and in history. The other book he wrote was called um, Speak Now Against the Day, and it's about the generation before the Civil Rights Movement in the American South. Um, and it's those two kind of narratives that um, that drove the Southern Freeways Alliance and drove me to be involved. Um, I got involved as a graduate student. I started um, a symposium on Southern food in 1998 mm-hmm. uh, when I was a graduate student here at the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi. And that symposium, wherein I didn't know what the hell I was doing and had um, not a lick of sense, that sense wasn't, I didn't have enough sense to know that you wouldn't schedule that the same weekend as the James Beard Awards. <laughs> I did. Um, but people still showed that first weekend that we did it, the first symposium we staged was a sellout. Um, mm. And that enthusiasm back in 98 drove John Edgerton to say, hey, could this be an organization? Could there more be more than just one weekend a year when we focus on this stuff? And his vision has really driven the organization since then. I was hired as director um, to, uh, to kind of execute a plan and raise a little bit of money, and um, we've been rocking along since. Wow. Well, where did you grow up? You've got a heavy accent. Um, it's funny. Some people, you know, who are like me are from the South. Tell me, you don't have an accent, boy. What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, I grew up in Georgia, in Middle Georgia, a little town called Clinton, um, which is about was about fifty people when I was growing up. Wow. It's a little bigger now, but it's not much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, lived in Georgia most of my life until I moved um, to the deeper South um, fifteen years ago to move here to Oxford, Mississippi. Great. What's life like in Oxford, Mississippi? Oxford's a hip little town. I mean, it's it's a courthouse square centered town. Um, there are, you know, to my mind, if you live in a great neighborhood, that means your neighborhood has at least one, if not two, restaurants you really like. It means it has at least one, if not two, bookstores you really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means it has one, if not two, really good bars that you like. And I have those things in my small town. Um, great restaurants. There's three bookstores on the square, all owned by our former mayor, um, Richard Haworth. Um, you know, John Kurtz, um, who won the Beard Award two years ago for Best Chef in the South, has um, has a restaurant that I can walk to. Um, nice. <laughs> and uh, he has an upstairs bar um, where I'm meeting someone for a meeting um, in about 30 minutes. So it's a great town. It's a town that understands the value of food culture and is really awakening to the import of it. Um, you know, we've got milk and glass bottles raised by, um, or with cows raised by a guy named Billy Ray Brown about two miles out in the country. We've got locally raised pork. Um, and a lot of this stuff is just what in some cases, how country people have sold to city people all along. Hmm. Not as much about virtue and about a new way of doing things as a way of reviving something that's always been going on. Right, that's what I was going to ask now. Has like the whole local organic food revolution, is this something that you know, has always existed in the South, or is it something that they, you know, something they're embracing now? No, I mean, I think, well, put it this way, we didn't have a local farmer's market until about seven years ago. Um, There had been one for the longest time. It um, varies in sundry squabbles, shut it down, and then we revived one about seven years ago. Um, And Billy Ray's Milk, which I love, um, you know, Billy Ray's Milk's only been around for a couple of years. Um, Access to pastured pork has been five years or more. Mm. 
but all of those are reviving a previous tradition, not re- not inventing a tradition. Um, and I think that's a distinction to make. Um, here, we're only you know we're this is the region of the country that was agricultural longest. So the tethers are stronger here. There's not as much reinvention as it is just a, a nudge in the right direction. Right. And uh, what about the whole uh, the whole animal cooking scene? Is that something that the South's been embracing? And how do you see that kind of find its way into Southern yeah. food? I mean, that, that's a fun, you know, that's a funny question to think about it is the whole animal cooking scene. You know, I mean, if that means whole hog barbecue, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it, it's something we've been doing for a couple hundred years. Right. Um, and, you know, I can drive... I don't, for reasons I don't fully understand, Mississippi doesn't have as strong a barbecue culture as the states that surround us, mm-hmm. especially um, Arkansas and Tennessee and Alabama. Um, but I can drive, you know, an hour and a half from my house and be in a place where they've been cooking a whole hog barbecue for over a hundred years and have never dropped that um, that facet of their culture and never, you know, never gotten away from the whole hog. It's always been whole hog. So, um, you know, that's that's what we know. Right. Well, what about, like, you know, some of the organ meats or awful cuts? Do, do you see any dishes being created with these types of things? Kind of like the American charcuterie trend that right. we've got up here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you can go to um, snack bar... Um, where they're making um, homemade um, pâtés and making, um, you know, making their own sausages next door at Big Bad Breakfast. There's a smokehouse out back, curing their own bacon with a Tabasco mash. Um, so those things are very much present. Um, you know, I think one of my sons favorite things as a child. Um, there was a place here for a while called L&M's Kitchen in Salumaria. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I'm from the South. I can't even say that damn thing. <laughs> um, but there was a guy named Dan Latham who ran it here. Um, he'd worked for Batali in New York for a long while, but he was a Mississippian. He was my friend who actually went out to Roberta's um, this past weekend and loved it. Mm. Um, but Dan um, was... I remember taking Bill Nyman into Dan's... Um, restaurant when it was here in Oxford, and, you know, Bill said, this is as good as what is anybody. Um, he's a rock star. Mm. Um, I took my son in there, and uh, Dan said, and my son's six at this point, and Dan mm-hmm. says, you want to try sweetbreads? <laughs> and my son says, my son hears sweet, and he hears bread. And he says, yes. <laughs> awesome. You need to start somewhere. <laughs> but, but you don't tell him can't hurt him, right? <laughs> no, and he, now he knows what they are, and he loves them. Oh, wow. good. That's awesome. Um, well, can you tell me about some of the current projects you're working on? Sure. Um, the Southern Foodways Alliance, we do three things. Primary of what we do is we document Southern food culture. So we do oral history work. We interview old line fried chicken cooks mm-hmm. and row crop farmers and gumbo cooks and barbecue pit masters with the idea that, you know, their stories have often, have not often been told. Um, we in the South have long valued our food culture, but we didn't value our cooks. And mm-hmm. some of that is um, based on race, some of that's based on class, some of that's based on gender. But we're trying to help people see the value of our food as not only, you know, not only in terms of, you know, what are the natural resources that go into it, um, but what are the human resources behind it? Who are the people? 
That's what we're focused on. So we, this summer, will complete our 500th oral history. Um, all of those, because we started after the digital revolution began, mm-hmm. all of those are accessible via our website um, with audio clips, with photographs, with full transcripts. Um, and then we do films, too. We, we've made about 25 short films, um, all based on telling this kind of honest story of working-class cooks in the South. Right. Well, we follow your Twitter uh, pretty much all the time, and, and, and you've been speaking about a new film that's coming out. You want to talk a little bit about that? We are. There was a great piece in the Atlantic, um, on the Atlantic website today that Vanessa Gregory wrote. Um, this will be a, this film that Joe York, the filmmaker with whom we work and is also based here, um, will be a modern-day survey of Southern food culture. Um, it will look, you know, at the recent past and look at the present and also project into the future. Um, if Southern food is a totem of who we are, will it continue to function as that mm-hmm. as the South changes? Um, you know, as you look at recent immigration into the South, um, you know, will that transform what we think of as Southern culture? Or do you accept, as I do, that culture isn't static, culture evolves? You know, Southern culture isn't fixed in any one time past or present. And um, that's the story we'll tell. Mm, sounds great. Well, we got to take a really quick break, John. If you stick with us, we got a few more questions for you. Have and to. you're listening to the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. We will be right back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. And uh, you can podcast this show on iTunes, actually. Just search iTunes for the Heritage Radio Network. And a reminder, we are sponsored by Hearst Ranch, and we're speaking with the one and only John T. Edge. John, uh, I just read one of your uh, updates that that y- you said you came to Prime Meats, and uh, one of the servers made a, an oily fish joke. Now, do you, do you think the people up here in the North, were, are, are we not taking this seriously enough? How has the oil spill really affected uh, your scene down there? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, one, I'll say, you know, my meal at Prime Meats was fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, especially the steak tartare and especially the Manhattan. Um, but the reason, you know, you think about in this modern age, a tweet um, has some effect on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an offhand comment does, too, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I think we as a country... Um, are not recognizing wholly the impact of this oil spill. Um, 
you know, one of the ways of thinking about it that I came across today is that um, by some estimates, one Exxon Valdez is emptying into the Gulf every four days. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's just, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to grapple with what this means in the sheer volume of oil entering the Gulf. Um, you know, for me, I come back to this idea of thinking about human resources. Uh, you know, I think in some ways what the Southern Foodways Alliance tries to do is um, help people. It's almost like a, we're a complement to slow food. I think slow food does a fantastic job of helping us think about the natural resources um, and the, the value of those within our lives, um, mm. within our lives and food. And the SFA focuses on those human resources. So when I think about the oil spill, I start thinking about those oystermen. I start thinking about the shrimpers. I start thinking about the people that go cast netting from mullet who, um, whose livelihoods are interrupted. Um, and I think about a place like P&J Oysters down in New Orleans. Do you all know that place? No, we don't. But, I mean, to your, to your point, I was thinking the same thing, like place-specific foods. Are these foods going to be around now, years from now? Well, it's, it's an interesting, thing. it's a really interesting question. Um, P&J, there's, Brett Anderson, who is both a good friend, um, a really great writer, and a board member for the Southern Foodways Alliance, Brett's stuff for the Times-Picayune, um, which is all available online, has been so strong and so heart-wrenching. Um, but Brett wrote a piece recently about P&J Oysters, which has been in business for more than 130 years. Wow. Um, founded by Croatian immigrants, um, you can kind of track that company and look at the evolution of New Orleans and ethnicity in New Orleans. You know, initially there's, it's owned by Croats, there are Cajun guys in there and they're shucking house, opening oysters, then they're African Americans, more recently they're Vietnamese. Um, P&J had to shut down their shucking operation when they would open oysters to sell, um, you know, by the gallon to to gumbo houses and, and po'boy joints and the like. And after 130 years, uh-huh. they had to shut down not the whole of the business, but the shucking operation. Yeah, that hurts. It hurts, and and they're talking about okay, where do we get our um, where do we get our oysters from? Do we look to the to the West Coast? Mm-hmm. And when you think about place specific foods. That's a that's a um a sad state of affairs. Right. I mean, you know, there's the whole east versus west oyster preference thing. It seems like that would kind of defeat that. Well, we definitely have some ideas, I guess, for uh, film projects for the future. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're Joe York, our filmmaker, just got back from about 16 days on the Gulf Coast. He did a a short film which is um, on our website about the blessing of the feet of the fleet at. Bayou Labattery, Alabama, which is down on the Alabama Gulf Coast, um, and that film is 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 beautiful. It's it's this kind of procession as the boats are leading out, and so hopeful that perhaps they'll be able to bring their catch in. Uh, but there's this you know really tragic undercurrent because you know at the same time they're going out, the oil's coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's switch to something a little more positive. <laughs> Do you think that, uh, you know, this whole high-endification of Southern food that's happening up here, the white tablecloth, fried chicken, and all that, do you think that's something that is flattering and will help Southern cuisine, or, or is, is it something you guys don't support so much? How do you feel about it? Um, I think that 
this um, this interest in southern food that we've seen, in which we've seen a, a kind of a recent uptick, you know, it's been kind of cyclical. You know, southern mm-hmm. food was hip in the 1960s too in mm-hmm. New York when Craig Claiborne is writing for the New York Times and um, a number of people are writing for Vogue and Time about soul food restaurants in New York. You know, and when they're writing about soul food in New York in that time when soul music was hip, they're writing about the foods of urban African Americans in New York and in Chicago. Um, so this isn't the first time that New York has grabbed hold of Southern food. I think it's good for Southern food because I think, you know, Southern food is worthy of a white tablecloth. I think a really supremely well-made piece of fried chicken is worthy of a white of a white tablecloth, you know, and it's been done in the South for a while. I mean, you look at um, what Frank Stitt's been doing at Highlands Bar and Grill in Birmingham, Alabama, for for over um, for nearly thirty years. Um, you look at the Sunday suppers that Linton Hopkins has been doing mm-hmm. in um, Atlanta for ten years. You know, based on fried chicken. Yeah, big fan of Linton here. Um, what are three foods that you would define to really be like the top three Southern foods? The top three Southern foods? Yeah, if you had to define uh, them. Um, I mean, if I could answer that in terms of, like, the foods that matter the most in the South, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I would think of those as um, as uh, fried chicken. Um, fried chicken because there's a backstory of race there. Um, fried chicken because to talk about fry cooks in the South, you're oftentimes talking about African-American women who, you know, stood tall by the stove for eons. Um, I'd say cornbread because if you look for a food that everybody embraces in the South, um, you know, no matter, because, you know, the South's the size of Western Europe. Mm. Uh, It's a big old region. But one of the few foods that's embraced throughout the region is cornbread. Um, and then I'd come back to that most primal of foods, too, barbecue, um, which, you know, to y'all's earlier question about, you know, the kind of um, the, the boom and in interest in um, southern food in New York, you know, the first to boom um, thanks to, you know, Union Square Hospitality and Blue Smoke and the restaurants that came in the wake of that is barbecue. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what you were saying before about the, uh, the cultural history of African Americans and the Southern food, I noticed that you, you mentioned the Thai restaurant by you that advertised the hot wings and fried rice for African Americans. Yeah. And it made me wonder if there are any soul food restaurants you see maybe advertising something to attract white customers. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, that's one of the things, it's one of the most hopeful things about food for me is because, you know, even though the races were long segregated in the South, our foods were never segregated. You know, um, white folks are showing up at the, black, at the back door of black-owned barbecue joints hmm. and vice versa. Hmm. You know, it, it's, you know, it, there's been a great cross-cultural pollination for the long history of the South. Um, and I think even though you may have some intransigent Southerners who might not see the common bond between black and white, um, you put them in front of you know a plate of okra and you say, now where, you know where that came from? That came from Africa, and and people buy that. I mean, that's one to me the most hopeful thing about the work of the Southern Two Ways Minds, or at least what we attempt to do, is to help people see a common bond while seated at the table, while communing black and white together. Wow. Well, I mean, that's 
That's really important. And I was just uh, wondering, because I know you have to go in just a couple of minutes, are there any things that we should be looking out for soon? Any um, uh, tours or um, articles, anything coming out that you're working on right now that we'll be seeing in the near future? Yeah, the, the, thanks for asking. The Southern Foodways Alliance has a um, what we're calling the Southern Foodways Alliance Community Cookbook coming out um, this fall. And uh, I'm real proud of that because... You know, those kind of spiral-bound cookbooks that, you know, the Junior League prints or a church group prints, um, they have in some ways um, fallen out of fashion. They're still being produced, but the fashion in which they're being produced, they're all slick now. Um, you know, and and a lot of the ones have excised the names of the cooks. You used to be able to look at a community cookbook, and it would tell you, you know, Mrs., John T. Edge the Third cooked this. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's what you're trying to preserve, just like with your, uh, you know. Yeah, because it's you know it's it's a tag. It says this person's hand was on this dish. Mm-hmm. So Definitely. what we're trying to do with this community cookbook is revive that and say here's a diverse assemblage of Southerners. This is the food they cook, and you know we're even using a spiral binding in the book itself. Awesome. Well, we don't need to lose that. We keep it all real. Just like you were yeah, saying I mean, with everything. That's the thing about it. It's, it's just honest. It's not as if it's retro. It's just honest. It's just the way it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Preserve the heritage. Well, John, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Yeah, please. Next pleasure. time you're in New York, um, I hope you can come by Roberta's and join us for a pizza. I really <laughs> want to. I really do. I got to tell you that there is a lot of hype on this Roberta's fried chicken. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to try it. What's yeah. the, I mean, what is the... If there's a, if there are categories of fried chicken, where where does Roberta's fall in the categories of fried chicken? You mean uh, in in terms of how good it is? I mean, some people uh, have no, called. No, no, no. I mean, in terms of like, what's the preparation style? Or very what's the simple. I think they they season it with just salt and pepper. Uh, yeah. Carolyn Bain, I think it's her recipe. She was from Pies and Thighs. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah, sure, I've heard of Pies and Thighs. Yeah, okay. it's got a it's got a great batter on it, and they serve it with a buttermilk lettuce salad and uh, with like a buttermilk dressing. It's uh, what is it? Butter, what lettuce do they use? The butter? The bib lettuce. Bib lettuce with buttermilk dressing, and then they do it with like a nice uh, biscuit and, you know, just trying to, you know, show people up here what's going on with uh, fried chicken, and I think it's working. Well, I look forward to trying that as my appetizer and moving on to pizza. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, have a great cool. meeting, and we'll Thanks. see you uh, and hear from you soon. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. We'll right. see you guys next week, 5 p.m. every Wednesday on the Farm Report. Thank you, Engineer Nat Wiener and our producer, Dan Brindell. Next week, we talk about what's organic about organic and the watermelons yes. from Florida. Awesome. Bye, guys. Take care. Young shorties in my hood started...